Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today, really special treat because we have a returning guest, Sarah Schoenfeld, who is now, okay, we spoke with Sarah about a year ago-ish, and then she was an assistant editor, and now she's an associate editor. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We didn't specify. You are with which publishing house? I'm at the imprint Catherine Teagan Books, and the publishing house is HarperCollins. I get to say my little disclaimer, which is that all my comments here are my opinions, and they don't reflect any of these companies. They're strictly my own, but it's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm so excited to chat about books. Just to, if you could specify for us, what is the difference? How much of a difference is there between assistant editor and associate editor? Is it your workload? Do you get cooler plants in your cubicle? What does that look like? I think the main difference here is I'm really focusing on growing my own list, which is so exciting. Part of what differentiates between entry-level positions like editorial assistant and then assistant editor and associate editor is mostly how much I get to acquire books, which is really such a pleasure. I've been in the industry for just over seven years now, and I'm really building a future with my own authors and their books, which is such a pleasure. That's amazing. So as an assistant editor, you're probably paired with another editor, so you don't get as much to build your own list. You're also partially working on their list. That's correct. So even as an associate editor, I still do assist. I have two editors that I, I help on their projects. But it, it is a different relationship, certainly, because at this point, I have that experience and I do feel so valued on this team to the degree that it's more of a partnership than just a direct manager assistant role as it might be when you first start out. That's pretty awesome. And just quickly, what's next for Is it like executive editor? Uh-huh. Comes next? Is that- so I hope one day to be promoted to editor, just editor. It would be lovely to be a fancy executive one day. But part of being an editor is having your own list and not assisting anymore, which would be a big step forward. And I would be able to devote 100% of my time to my authors, as much as I still enjoy the apprenticeship aspect of working with my two mentors right now. Oh, that's kind of funny. The goal is to become an editor without title. So we have assistant editor, associate editor, editor, editor. And then once you get past that, are those more people, they have their own list, but they're also people who are kind of forming a little bit more of policy, I guess, or this is what our imprint is focused on. Is that kind of what happens when you get to like it the... It varies from imprint to imprint. There are certainly sometimes more senior roles that do influence how the imprint is run. At my current position and the trajectory that I could look at, It would just really be about building my title count, maybe one day getting an assistant of my own, and really getting to dig into the work that I'm doing. And then some imprints, of course, you have a publisher, some will have an editorial director who also takes on some of that more corporate and policy, as you suggested. There are a lot of different options in publishing, and that's one of the great things, is that each imprint is a little bit different. And I'm thrilled to be at Catherine Teagan Books. Okay, cool. Because I think, especially for writers, we're like, you work with an editor. And then, wait a second, there's different kinds of editors. And <laughs> there's a lot of different kinds. Okay, cool. Very good. We spoke to different kinds of editors before. It seems like a lot of, I mean, the editing part is kind of all the same. It just depends on if, what other things come with it. The add-ons, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for everyone who's used to kind of the formatting of, of these bonus episodes, we're not going to start all the way from the beginning with Sarah because we did that already. So you'll see a link in the episode notes to see the first time we spoke with Sarah and instead we figured to focus on something a little bit different and we had different topics option and the one that we're going to focus on is about foreshadowing and planting clues in stories that can then help pay off later on. I think you had a better way of phrasing it though. 
mysteries are having such a moment right now, and I've had the pleasure of assisting on some really incredible mysteries, and I have acquired a couple that haven't been announced yet. But I think almost any story can be a mystery in some way, in the sense that you're giving your readers clues. There's this really great quote that I'm going to completely mess up, but every single book ending, in order to feel earned, you want something that's going to be surprising but expected. And so I think thinking about your novel as a mystery, even if it's some other genre, you can put those clues in there and get to that really sticky ending where people land and feel just so great about where it wraps up. Just an initial thought. Planning clues is kind of something that you sort of need to do also just if your character is going to be doing something that Mm -hmm. we have to see that there was something in their personality or in their character that would have led to certain things. Like, you know, for example... If someone's got to fight someone, you want to know somewhere in the beginning that they had some sort of either fighting training or like some sort of exposure or some sort of grit, uh, I don't say grit, or something to them that would then make sense of why they would actually engage in a fight later versus when it just comes out of nowhere, you're like, wait a second, where did this come from? This, there was no setup for this. So can we say that's exactly. kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. Yay. So where would we start for something like this? How do we even approach this? I think there are a few different ways of putting clues into your story. Some people... Who like to outline, it might be useful to think about what you're going to need later on looking at your outline. And if you're a pantser, it might really make sense to just write a whole first draft and then go back and say, what have I relied on? What character facts or world building, setting, other details do I need to have in my toolkit so I have to put them in earlier? Because you want readers to always be a step behind, but not 20 steps behind. And that balance is really hard to strike. So I think this is something that really comes in handy during revision. Okay. There's so much to follow up, ask about that. What does that (laughs) even mean about your setting or what? Sure. Yeah. A lot of times I'll see in, let's say, for example, a fantasy novel, but this is true of so many other genres, including historical fiction or anything that's not taking place in The place that I'm familiar with, so a novel is not set in New York and not set in today's world, I'm going to need to know things at certain points for a payoff. So let's say we have a confrontation between our main character and the main villain, and you need to know an element about this world. Perhaps the gravity is different there, and we're on the moon. I don't know. But in a scenario like that, you need to know that before it's used by the main character for it to feel like a payoff. Certainly, you can give us this information during an action sequence, but it's so much more meaningful to a reader if they can guess it and they can say, oh, you already told me the gravity is different here. So when our villain punches our good guy, I think they're going to go flying and maybe there's some other thing that they can pick up on. I know that was a bit of a strange example, but you can think about this happening not just with something that's sci-fi or fantasy, but even in historical fiction, where, you know, maybe they have a landline and we need to know that in order to understand some payoff that's going to come later. And it's hard to know that before you've actually written the scene. And once you have that scene set, you can say, oh, I'm cashing in on this fact of the world. And I want to set that up maybe a couple chapters earlier. Oh, very good. So, without saying this as a strict rule, it seems if you don't get all the clues right away, it's fine. Just write the story, and then once you see where everything's led to, you can then work backwards to set it up. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think the times that you definitely want to do this, there are two case studies that I'd say, and and one would be the ending, of course, because you do want the ending to have that payoff. You don't want your hero to be pulling out some magical dagger that's very convenient that you've never mentioned before. But also another good time to do this is again during those action sequences where you don't want to have to stop the action and explain something. So if you can get that in earlier and then kind of cash in on that hint that you've snuck in there, that's going to really help the action progress faster. And as readers, we can feel very proud of ourselves for knowing and maybe expecting that to happen. Right. Okay, so using your moon example, it can be, well, you know, when you put it out there, it can be anything from just kind of, you know, I had to put on my moon boots so that I wouldn't fly away with gravity, just a throwaway line, or in school, we all had to do training classes, blah, 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 and then it becomes a whole scene about these training classes of working with gravity. It could be either one of those things to plant the clue in this regard. Yeah, definitely. And it could even be something that literally matches the same action, but with a different character. It could be something like they have a moon dog and the moon dog goes bouncing off and they say, huh, that's weird how that happens. And then they use it to their advantage later. Right. Well, I guess also, especially if you have someone who's also new to the setting, they would also have to explore the setting somehow. My first day on the moon or whatever versus someone who was born on the moon. Yeah. So what's also specifically interesting about this is that we're talking about planting clues and it's not even the same of make sure to show why this alibi didn't add up kind of clue. Mm -hmm. They're two separate things, but they're also not two separate things, it seems. Yeah, so it's not necessarily that a reader has to take every single detail you're giving us and craft some solution that's entirely perfect. It's more that you can think about mentioning things more than once and readers will pick up on it and they'll say, why are they including this detail? And maybe then later on, they get that payoff and they get a little gold star for reading closely, but they also get that feeling of satisfaction because your world feels complete and like it exists. And it's not just convenient. It's not just in this moment that you need it. It's been there the whole time. Even if you didn't know it from the first page when you were writing, you went back and you threaded that in. So it feels so authentic and lush. Right. That you have to thread it in. I guess the aim is also to kind of just make it seem like it's a natural part of the story to have that clue there instead of we must talk about our training right now because we will need this later sort of thing. Yeah. And another thing that I always suggest, which is one of my classic edits, and I know I talk about this a lot, but there is a temptation to start with your inciting incident. So to find that high energy, high stakes turning point for your character and start with page one there which is really tricky to do because as readers were coming in with absolutely no understanding of the who, what, why, when, how of your story, and we also have no clues so that when everything does change, we're a little bit lost sometimes. So I always recommend starting the day before your inciting incident. So the day before everything changes and really setting up what the normal world is like so that when things do change, we can see that change and understand it, but we also already know how everything works. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like almost that would be something that would work better in film, where we have so many visual clues that can tell us things right away, versus in a story that we needed a lot of things to be told to us. Exactly. And I know rules are made to be broken, and certainly nothing is a universal rule. So if you feel really strongly and you have this scene in your head, I say write it and see how it reads. But one of the problems of being an author is you have everything in your head already. So you don't necessarily know what's confusing or where a reader might be lost. So I do recommend also trying a draft where you do rewind just a little bit and give us decently normal 
day, a decently normal hour before everything goes wild. Right. Do you think there's a difference between if someone's doing a linear timeline versus a non-linear timeline? Only when we go to the past, can we find out certain things and in the future we can, or sometimes we can find out things in the future and then we go back to the past to find out how that started for like, you kind of see where, where the question is going. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, so I'm writing a submission now that is not linear. I have a book that's publishing in a couple months, which was one of my first acquisitions, which is also not linear. And it's really interesting because the same concepts do apply in that we need a stable moment to appear in this timeline. And we do need that same information about the setting and the characters and the stakes before everything changes, even if it literally doesn't occur in your timeline before then. Does that make sense? Okay, so it still goes back to what you said before. Just mm-hmm. show us something normal first, and then you could, you know, then I think you go haywire. Not that you can start with the future scene or with the scene that's not linear yet. People could do that. But if you're not exactly the expert at it, start at the right time and time and then start jumping around. Yeah, and I do think there are some really clever examples of people disregarding this advice. I always say I, I'm a big fan of the television show Leverage. They would always flash forward and show you a part of their heist that had gone wrong and then jump back to the beginning of the heist before they even meet their client or stake out the museum or whatever. So I think there are other timelines you can mess with, but you have to know going in that you're going to have readers a little bit confused then. If you're starting in the last, let's say, hour of your heist, you still do then need to zoom back to a day before even think about taking on the job so it's the same concept it's just a little bit out of order but it's so important to ground us and give us that sense of expectation the sense of character goals all the details before jumping into it right also now that you mentioned the tv series anything that's a detective sort of series that's clearly a mystery you do see that there are different formats they can use and how much they'll reveal or not I think Columbo is one of the smartest things ever, also just because the character is so great. But there, they show you the murder right up front. They show you the murder happening and everything like that, and then they got to bring in Columbo. We know he's going to solve it, but what is he going to pick up on? Because even when you're watching as the murder happens, you don't necessarily pick up what clues the murderer left behind. We know exactly who did it. We know what happened. But the mystery is not the who done it anymore. It's the how is he going to figure out who did it. And that's... Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing there is the main character becomes so important. We're not just invested in the plot we're invested in Columbo which right. is very smart yeah they did a lot of smart stuff with it they also cast him very well yeah they did very yeah <laughs> yeah but I guess that goes to show also that kind of what we're saying is that the clues can be planted the guy put the mail on the table and he realizes how's the mail on the table if no one came into the house or whatever you wouldn't necessarily pick up on that because it's such a natural thing for someone to have done so if it's something that's so natural for your world to have done but you still made sure to show it to us kind of thing exactly yeah interesting Okay, what else have we got about this clue planting stuff? What so more there's, do we there's have? one specific area that I do find that I use the same language for, which is not related to plot, not as much related to character, but is more related to the emotional stakes of the story. One thing that I frequently say, and I mean this in not a judgmental way and certainly not an insult to any type of media, but I do sometimes find that big emotional moments can start to feel a little soap opera If we haven't had a chance to see that emotion forecasted and we haven't seen the clues throughout the scene of how the character is feeling. And I can give you an example. 
if you have two characters having a discussion and your scene is very dialogue heavy, so we're not seeing actions, we're not seeing movements throughout the space, we're not feeling having any sensory details from our main characters. And if suddenly one character bursts into tears, we might not have seen that coming, so it might feel unearned and you might have that soap opera reaction of heightened drama without the emotions underneath it. So I always say, when I want those sensory details, those small actions that you might give as staging directions to an actor, such as at this point, this character gets up and walks away because they feel the conversation is getting too intense, or maybe their voice gets a little choked up, or they're rubbing at their eyes because they're getting teary. These sorts of details can really help that emotion feel earned and build more slowly so that when they do burst into tears, it doesn't feel quite as random and sudden. So I do always talk about emotional forecasting as well, and it is that same sort of clue and setup and foreshadowing, but just in an emotional sense. That is such an amazing point. Well, okay, is that different, or that's different than saying from the beginning, this was a person who would easily cry, or she was a very emotional person, or if he saw this, he would cry, and then four chapters later, we have the scene where the, the person is caused to cry. It's not the same thing as that. Not necessarily, no. I think the most important thing in emotional forecasting is in that moment, and you don't necessarily need to tell us beforehand because you're showing us in the scene. Now, if you have a scene where a character isn't crying and perhaps they feel that they should be, or as readers we feel like they should be, and then later on they do, that then has that same sort of setup, and it is more of a character-building moment where you do see the change because they've made progress or they've regressed, depending on their character. But I do think in this sense, uh, in this example, I do think it's important in that particular scene to gradually give us clues about how your character is feeling. Because often it's very easy in the first draft to write dialogue out. I do highly recommend that. It's a great way to get the beats to really land. It feels natural. It can flow. And then you can go back in and add the two other types of narration those being description and action that can then give us a sense, the ability to visualize what's happening, but also the ability to feel the way the character is feeling along with them. Right. What do you think, or I guess maybe it might depend on what it is. If a clue has to be explained, is there like a rule for that? Or is it just, or like, let's say it wasn't, someone doesn't usually cry and then they cry. Do we then have to explain, oh, I'm crying now because whatever, or can we leave the moment as is, or is that kind of, well, it depends on the scene, I'd have to know who the characters were, etc. I would say that actually depends most on the age group. So okay. I tend to suggest the younger the book is, the more that you want to show and then tell, especially with emotions. I think that's a great way of teaching young kids as a way to label, to get the vocabulary that they need to describe their emotions. Because if you're writing for chapter books, for example, six or seven-year-olds may not know what type of emotions they're feeling. I think as adults, we sometimes feel this way too, where we don't take a moment to really sit and say, huh, I'm frustrated right now. Maybe that's because I'm hungry or something like that. Right. And I think the younger the book, it is really helpful to sort of describe how that emotion feels in a bodily sense. Maybe you're feeling warm, maybe your throat feels tight, maybe your hands are shaking, and then you can say, oh, I'm feeling angry. And that is great for a young reader. It's great for a picture book. We always talk about social emotional learning, especially in picture books. And I think that sort of emotional teaching is very useful. I would say when you get to middle grade and YA, there is more freedom to say, 
my reader knows what's going on here and I can step back a little bit. I don't have to label quite as much. I've given them all the clues. They can get to the conclusion on their own. Right. This is a total side thing, but I've seen recently that it's a lot of picture books, especially some that have gotten a little bit more attention. It seems to me that a lot more are focusing on much, I don't know if I want to use the word deeper emotion, or they're much more emotionally heavy, mm-hmm. maybe, or what's a way to describe that? Like, there's just stronger emotion than it used to be? Is yeah, that... I always say, like, big emotions, which is vague, but I do think there are these, as you put it, emotional books that are coming out, because I do think there's a need for children to verbalize and communicate their emotions. I think we're all going through tough times, and there's more of a spotlight on children's mental health and I think one of the main steps there is giving kids the power to come forward and say I'm feeling sad or what to do when they're feeling sad that might be more healthy and more constructive than other media that's existed in the past. I don't want to say there's a reckoning but I do think there's a need and a desire to give kids the toolkit to not handle it on their own but know when to come forward to parents and understand what's happening. Right. I know someone whose child is autistic. Once they start getting certain kind of help, certain kinds of professionals who can actually give guidance, you know, on how to deal with this. One of the first things they did was to teach him to identify. And he used to walk around, I am very upset. I am very, very upset. But it was say, I am very upset instead of immediately going to just attack someone. Don't automatically hit, say, I am very upset. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, again, I think people of all ages can really benefit from that. I think there are cases where even adults could step back and say, hmm, maybe before I tweet this thing, I should think about how I'm feeling. But I think, again, we're all going through tough times and there might be this impulse to experience the emotion rather than label it, which is totally valid as well. But I do think there is this push in children's books specifically to open up the conversation. And I think children's books, especially picture books, are a great way to start conversations with kids including about tough topics. Hmm. There's a lot to say on that too. Because we're kind of talking about planning clues, I'm going to go back to it. Like, oh, good, we have a whole other podcast here now to talk about picture <laughs> books and emotions and stuff. Going back to the planning the clue thing, what do we kind of have to pay attention to if it's going to be like a series? Are we allowed to knock hmm. out some of the clues that we've done before? Do we then have to explain if, oh, it used to be gravity worked this way, but because, you know, whatever my new thing is. I've had this thing that I kind of learned from experience, and I don't know that there's also a direct answer for this, that sometimes it's very beneficial if you're writing a series to work on the second book before the first book gets published. Because there's going to be stuff that's going to come up in the second book as you understand your world more, as you get into your characters more and all that sort of stuff that you're going to want to happen. But if it's not in line with your first book, first book's out there, you can't deny what's written already. Do we have rules for that for series or it's just, look, just make sure everything makes sense sort of thing, or just don't undo what you've already done? As an editor, whenever there's any sort of world building, one of my first questions is, is this consistent? Does it follow the same scientific laws as our world? And just find a way to make it as clear as possible so that hopefully you're not writing yourself into a corner later. I do think there are different ways to write a series, and certainly that's going to depend on your publishing goals. I do highly recommend if you're pursuing traditional publishing to not fully write the second book. Because if you do work with an editor, we're going to want to have input on the second book. And we're going to want to work together with you on it. So I find generally it's most helpful to have a completed first draft of your first book. And then maybe write just an outline of the second book. And you can put out the story beats. You can figure out maybe what your conflict is going to be and figure all of that out. But I wouldn't necessarily write both books and query them at the same time. Just because as editors... 
we always have opinion and we love to sort of work together on a project. Yeah. There's also no way for a writer to anticipate what will come up with an editor that the editor is going to be like, hey, what's going on here? And you're like, wait a second, I do have to figure out what's going on here. And then all of a sudden that leads to something new. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. Exactly. But look, okay, for writing a series, well, actually in general, can we plan clues that don't get answered or maybe don't get answered till another book? Or is that kind of like a cheat to the readers? Oh, 100%. I took a screenwriting class once and some classic screenwriting advice is in the first part of the movie, you're doing the first half of juggling, which is you have maybe... 10 bouncy balls and you're throwing them all up in the air. Nothing bad will happen if you don't catch all of them. But if in the second half you catch three of them, that's going to be three moments where your audience gasps or claps or cries because you've set it up already. So the trick is to catch as many bouncy balls as you can. Oh, interesting. But then we got the 10 bouncy balls up. Do we stay away from giving too much time to the seven, let's say, that we're not going to be catching? You know, is that something that we got to keep in mind with this? Yeah, so certainly those are things that, again, in a later draft, if they have to be cut, they can be cut for space because maybe there's not that payoff yet. This always makes me think of, I don't know if you ever watched the classic Scooby-Doo shows, and you would always be able to tell what was going to happen because that part would be animated a little bit less intensely, and you would be able to see what was going to happen. And I kind of think about writing in that way of you're going to have these movable parts that you're going to slot in earlier in the manuscript that are going to then have that payoff. So your trapdoor maybe is going to get put into the first act so that you can come back to it later, like in Scooby-Doo. Hmm. A lot of things that we said so far, I think can apply to everything, not specifically mystery. But you exactly. did you did start off with mentioning mystery. Is there something, I don't know if I want to say different or specific to mystery that we got to bear in mind with planting clues? Or is it really the same rules that you just got to apply it to the genre? For mystery, I think you have to have red herrings, which is not true of all these sorts of clues I'm talking about. So in a sci-fi novel, if you're setting up the world building, you don't need fake world building and you don't need <laughs> elements of the world building that never come back. You can write it kind of straight as in clue A has payoff A and so forth. But in a mystery, you do have to have sort of false leads or it's going to be either too easy to figure out or it's going to be too simple so in order to kind of bulk out your mystery, you do need to have your main character going down false paths, getting a little bit confused. And that can be really tricky because it needs to all make sense and it needs to be believable until it's not, until a new clue turns up. Mysteries are not easy to write. I'm so impressed every time I read a mystery and I can solve it because I think the true marker of a good mystery is that you can kind of guess what's going on and they're giving you just the right amount of information where you have this tickling sense of, I think it's this and I don't know why I'm missing a clue, but I'm pretty sure it's this person. And when you get to the end and you're right, that's not necessarily the reader being an excellent detective. As much as I like to think of myself as one, it's that the author has done an incredible job of giving us just what we need to figure it out. Right. Would you say that for you personally, you're not necessarily a big fan of when the, the culprit or the villain turns out to be someone that we haven't, we don't know anything about? And I am thinking of something specific. I'm thinking of, you know the movie Seven? Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Oh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> great. <laughs> well, it's been out for a long time. Okay, I won't get too specific, but the ending, it's just like, where did you just get him from? And it's... Yeah. All the buildup of all the clues, they all fit together and like, oh, we see it as the seven deadly sins, right? Right. So all the uh, all the crimes, they all tie into each other. 
But then when we find out who the person is, it's like, have we seen him yet on screen? So, yeah, I don't think we have. So, so, no, yeah. I would say that someone who is going against the rules of the genre, and again, rules are made to be broken. I've heard incredible things about this movie. I don't think people were disappointed. But what it does come down to is you're not going to have that payoff. Instead, you're going to have surprise for subverting the genre, which is a completely different emotion from your audience. And if you want to do that, great. That's totally up to you and totally up for the emotion that you're trying to get out of your audience. I tend to find that mysteries are the most satisfying when I can guess who it was. Right. You know, you don't want to go to an escape room that's not solvable. You want to go to an escape room that's hard, but has a solution that you can find. And you want to feel accomplished and smart. I love reading these mysteries and thinking, I am the smartest detective in the world. Yeah. And really, I can't figure out where I left my phone sometimes. That's actually a good example of the escape room. Because a lot of times you only get clues once you solve the clue before it. So you do see that it's not, everything's kind of all, all there. But we don't know it all in the beginning. Again, to reference another detective media, The After Party, which was on Apple TV, was a series that actually used the metaphor of escape room. So I'm not coming up with that on my own, unfortunately. But the example there was, we're given all the information that we need. We can figure it out. And I think truly that's what makes mysteries so satisfying. And I think in part that's what makes books and stories so satisfying is that we as readers are along for the journey but we also have a little bit of that dramatic irony in the sense that we know it's a story and we know that there are beats that we're expected to hit and we know that there's going to be some sort of conflict and hopefully our hero wins so we want to have some of those expectations pay off and we'll feel so satisfied if we can predict maybe 75 percent of how it's going to work out and be surprised by that last 25 percent yeah and then would you say motivation considered a clue or is that part of it's also character building or both because I guess it kind of goes back to the seventh thing or, or whatever. It's almost like whoever the villain's going to be, it's fine. I, the story's more satisfying or the reveal's more satisfying if I, if I get what he did, what he did. If not, it almost feels like he just spaghetti flung someone at me. Motivations are so important to every part of the story. It's really hard to sort of pull it out separately. But I do think that there is a sense of if a character has a stated goal or a character has a reason for wanting something, that is foreshadowing in a sense that the character really wants to get a chocolate chip cookie and we see a chocolate chip cookie later in the book. We know that it's important and it'll be really interesting to see how our main character reacts. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. This is like a totally general question, but that just to set it up a little bit. I did recently try to write my first sort of murder mystery thing and the problem that I had with it, I did finally get it done, but I started with, I knew the beginning, I knew the ending. So I knew what that was going to be. So I started writing and then I realized I didn't know any of the middle. And so and I had to start, okay, what would happen in a murder mystery? So is that, it's kind of what we got to, I didn't really, okay, I thought I knew what the question I was setting up with this, but I don't really know. It's kind of like, you know, if you're writing the murder mystery and you do get stuck, some options for you would be send everyone down a wrong path or, you know, just plan something that wastes somebody's time that ends up not being important because it's also kind of like a red herring or, uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that or to, to put in there before I totally just walk in circles with this? <laughs> no, so it's hard. I, I think this is true of almost any novel. Again, I do think this is a universal problem, which is we know usually how we want our stories to start. At least that's how I write. Generally think of an opening scene or where your character is going to be emotionally. And then you think of the ending, which is, let's use a rom-com as an example, because I love rom-coms and they're also incredibly formulaic. So you can yeah. think, okay, these two characters are going to be separate. And at the end, they're going to be together. How are they going to get there? 
And one thing that I always recommend, which people can have different thoughts about this for sure, but I always say, fall back on your comps. Really research what other similar genres are doing. In the case of a rom-com, there are usually established beats that they hit. So it's, you know, the characters meet, they fall in love, they have some sort of argument, they have a falling out, and then they get back together again. It's the the standard structure for a rom-com. So you could then use that kind of like a wire frame for plotting out your story. In a mystery, you're going to have that times five or times ten because you do have all these separate little windy paths and clues that you're uncovering and interviews to do and scenes to scout out and pictures to look at. So it just becomes magnified and even more complicated. I'm thinking specifically, I've had the pleasure of helping on the Truly Devious series of Maureen Johnson, and she plots her mysteries out so smartly. You can never quite guess what's going to happen, but you kind of know what's going to happen. And she doesn't follow the same story beats, and she mixes it up. But at the same time, each clue is coming to light for a reason. And it turns into this beautiful recipe for just all the emotions. It's such good payoff. It's romantic at times. It's funny. It's scary. It's incredibly difficult to balance. So I say if you're writing a mystery, kudos to you. And if you're struggling with it, it really is complicated. And you do have to almost think about it as little mini escape rooms that you're trying to build out of literally nothing. You don't even have a room to start with. You have to build the room too. So it is very difficult. Well, I'm so glad your answer was way more coherent than my question was. (laughs) (laughs) Was it? Yeah, it was. Because first of all, it was. And then it also kind of, it opens the door to, even if you have to resort to the formula, at least you'll have something written and then you could go back and do what you need to do with it. But you got to get something down. Yeah. I always say when you're stuck, so in a perfect world, you would write your first draft and then you would read all of your comp titles after finishing the draft. I think that's a great formula because you won't be influenced by them, but you can be inspired by them. Let's say you think you have a saggy middle. You can read other books and see how they handle that. I always suggest if you have a question about your own work and if you can't find a beta reader or you want to try to handle it on your own for some reason, start by reading and read a book that you think could sit alongside yours on shelves. That's part A. But sometimes we get stuck while we're writing and we can use that inspiration from comps while writing. The tricky part is, of course, making sure that you stay separate enough and you're not going to actually lift anything too directly. But I do think it can help maybe give you a kickstart because you can say, all right, in this book that I'm reading, they went left. I'm going to go right and I'm going to make the complete opposite decision at the scene. And maybe that inspires you. Yeah, it's a good... I've met certain writers who don't read a lot. It's always been puzzling to me because don't you want to see what other people are doing to know... I don't Okay, I don't want to sound so critical, but it's like you got to read... Right, you got to read to know what's out there kind of thing. I really do think that the best writers are really big readers. And not just because, you know, of course you're learning when you're reading and you're seeing people handling the same questions and you're learning the genre conventions and you're studying in a way the art of writing but also because you know what else is out on the market and you know what sells and what hooks you as a reader and what you love in a story and the more that you can understand what makes something special and makes you passionate about a project the more that you'll be able to write that so I completely respect not wanting to read something while you're writing because you don't want to muddy your mind you want to kind of focus on that But between projects or when you're taking a break, just crack open a book, go to the library, download an audiobook, 
there's so many ways to consume books. Just get out there and get reading. Amen. Yeah. I'm not a hobby rallying cry. Yeah. Well, I, I would wrap up there, but just to ask you quickly, is there something that you kind of also want to mention that we didn't mention yet on this topic? Hmm. I'm sure you'll think about it at five o'clock in the morning. Now, is there anything that you can remember? The other classic advice that I will give is when you finish writing and you're not sure how to revise, read other books, try to find a beta reader if you can, let it cool is classic advice, so set your book aside. But the one thing that might help most with this sort of adding in clues and adding in foreshadowing is to do a reverse outline, which is the most unpleasant experience. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But what you want to do is go chapter by chapter and write a very dry synopsis style wrap up and say, here's what happens in the chapter. So it could be my character gets on a train and that could be the event for the chapter. And that's all you write. And then you say, how does this advance character? Well, my character was afraid of traveling and now they're on a train. So they're facing their fears. How does it advance the plot? Okay, my character has to get from point A to point B and they're taking a train. And you do that for each chapter. This might help you realize what information readers might need before the scene happens and give you that natural way of threading it in earlier. So in this case, the fact that they haven't traveled, their fear of traveling, you can weave that in earlier. It might sound very simple, but I promise you that writing a synopsis or writing a reverse outline like this can be extremely useful in sort of seeing the forest for the trees with your own work. Oh, very good. Very, very good. It sounds like something I would dread doing, but it does sound very it's practical. It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's really not fun. Well, well, because anytime a writer has to do less words than what's already done is annoying. So that's already starting off from there. So. Yeah, and it forces you to really distill your work. I know that when I write, I like to write a lot of jokes and a lot of puns. And I think to myself, haha, I'm so clever. And then when I do this, it strips all that away and I have to really see the bare bones of what my story is doing and not just how it reads. It sounds like it could also be a good way to help clean up a story. Definitely. You, yeah. You've got X amount here, but it didn't do anything. So why is it there? So exactly. Yeah. Give it a purpose or get it out kind of thing. Well, this is so much good stuff. I'm so glad we got to speak again. It's so amazing. <laughs> and when I get five submissions that take place on the moon, and one that has a train journey, <laughs> I'll know where it came from. You heard it here first. <laughs> hey, good luck to everyone. This venture is good. Well, very good. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I'm really glad I got a chance to speak with you again. Oh, thank you. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring associate editor Sarah Schoenfeld. To find out more about Sarah and her work, please check out the link in the episode note. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast or check us out at eltenenbaum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.